0: I was listening to a um, spiritual teacher that I really love, a fellow by the name of Mark Nepo, this week, and he told the story of an old Eastern teacher, a Hindu teacher, I think it was. Uh, there was a, in the story, there was, it was an unnamed author, but in the story, there's a master and a, an apprentice. Almost in every Eastern story. Even in the stories of Jesus, there's a master and an apprentice, and generally that represents not two people, but it represents two parts of yourself. There isn't all of us a master. There isn't all of us the apprentice. Um, Henry Nouwen takes that approach when he tells the story of the prodigal in his great book, The Return of the Prodigal. He walks through the story and shows us how we are the father at times and how there's a part of us that is the elder brother and a part of us that is the younger brother. Um, that's normally uh, part of the pedagogy of the Eastern teachers and in this particular Hindu story I believe there was an apprentice and the teacher and the apprentice was incredibly annoying to the teacher the thing that was particularly annoying about the apprentice if I remember the story correctly is that he was always complaining about life he was always bemoaning his woes and the vicissitudes of life Uh, particularly annoying about the young apprentice to the master was that the apprentice reminded the master of himself when he was younger and on one particular day the young man's complaining reached such a fevered pitch that the master told him to go and get a handful of salt and to take that handful of salt and to put it in a glass of water and to bring it to him quietly the master said the young man came and he sat before the master with the intensely saline solution and the master told him drink it And as the young man drank the water, he immediately was uh, caused to spit it out. It was just too much for him to bear. The master then told the young man to take another handful of salt, just as much as before, and to follow him out to a spring-fed lake from which flowed a river. The master led the young man there with the fits full of sand, and he told, or rather salt, and he told him to throw the salt into this spring-fed lake. The young man threw it in, and then the master said, drink from the lake. The young man drank from the lake, and the master asked him how it was, and the young man said it was cool and it was refreshing. The master looked at the young man and said, stop being a glass and start being a lake. Stop being a glass and become a lake. In other words, when faced with pain, we always have the opportunity in our perspective to be a glass or a lake. When faced with pain, we have the opportunity to either reduce or enlarge our sense of things. I think about the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 4, and I think about all that he endured In relative martyrdom. And Paul said, For my light affliction, which is but for a moment. Think about that. He endured affliction over the space of some 20 to 30 years. He was beaten with rods multiple times. He was stoned and left for dead. Um, The necessities of life were very dire and stark for him again and again and again. And yet, Paul said, For my light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for me a far greater weight of glory. For I look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, when we're faced with pain, our perspective doesn't alter the amount of pain. Our perspective doesn't alter the amount of salt that we're given. We're all given perhaps not an equal amount of salt, but we all get plenty of salt in this life. And our perspective may not alter the amount of pain but it does have the ability to right-size it if you know what I mean and I think one helpful mechanism by which we are all greatly advantaged in our efforts to right size life to take the amount of salt we're given to take the pains of this life one of the ways that we can right-size one of the ways that we can become a lake instead of a glass literally is this thing we call community within the Christian community we call it the church I don't know who first said it, but I've heard it said in multiple ways that community and a group of people has a way of dividing pain and at the same time multiplying joy. Our pains are divided by community and our joys are multiplied by the same. This is what Christians call the church. Those who are called out and called together Paul described this as a body that is fitly joined together, not loosely, but fitly joined together, such that Paul said, when one part of that body hurts, the entire body hurts, but when one part celebrates, all of the body celebrates. I wanted to take just a moment tonight and just kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about this lake that we're a part of, this This community that allows us to right-size life, to right-size pain and struggle and to increase our joy, this thing called um, the church. There's a lot of ways to approach this, but as I was thinking about it this week, I thought about the earliest Christian writers, those who started writing down the story of Jesus some two to three decades after his life. Those earliest writers like Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, those earliest writers reflected on Jesus' mission. They reflected on His life. They reflected on His purpose. And it's very clear in those first decades, as they were trying to make sense of who Jesus was, that they believed Jesus had come to establish what their Jewish ancestors, many of them were Jewish themselves, but they believed Jesus had come to establish what their Jewish ancestors had for centuries described as the kingdom of God. The early Christian church wrote through a very Jewish lens about an ultimate belief in what some have called a utopian society. Um, I'm going to take a moment and just read you a couple of texts, some of the classic texts from the Old Testament prophets about this kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11 says, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. Now remember, Jesse was the father of David. And Jesus came from the lineage of David. So this is a prophecy about a coming Messiah. A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." And when that Messiah comes, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the people and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And the wolf shall live with the lamb... We hear all the time about the lion lying down with the lamb. Did you know the Bible never says the lion will lie down with the lamb? You ever quote that? The lion's going to lie down with the lion"? It never says that. It says the wolf. I don't know where we got the lion thing from. But the wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid goat. The calf and the lion and the fatling will live together. And a little child shall lead them. And that day the cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Lee, every time I, I read this about the bear and lion, or, or the bear and the cow shall lay down together, you know exactly the story. I think about when you guys were in Montana and you were a fishing guide. you remember that big old bear that came out of the woods? Big old 1,000-pound sow bear comes running out of the woods. How far was it? Like a 100 yards across the field. There was another 1,000-pound heifer. And Lee said, within seconds, that bear charged that old heifer. And as the cow was running away in horror, the bear running alongside, just the awe of nature, that big paw went up, and it slapped the cow and broke its neck instantly. The cow went down, and that bear in great power, thousand pounds of cow lifted it in its mouth and with it between its legs went off into the woods. It's horrific, it's awe-inspiring, and yet it's sad for so many. This ecology of life where things have to die, where one thing's gain is another thing's suffering. The writer said, one of these days the cow and the bear, that old bear is not going to run down that cow and break its neck, but they're going to lie and repose together. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the snake, and the wean child shall put his hand on the serpent's den, and they will not hurt to destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the people. The nation shall inquire of him and the dwelling shall be glorious, or his dwelling shall be glorious. On that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant from throughout the earth. And he will raise a signal for the nation and all will gather at Israel and they will worship the God of Israel." A couple of more text, smaller, shorter text, Isaiah 2, the word that Isaiah son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in days to come the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills, all the nations shall stream to it, many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach all the earth his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and God will judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will never lift up sword against nation again, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have forsaken the ways of your people. O house of Jacob, come home again to the God of Israel. And then finally, and this perhaps is my favorite from Micah, the prophet Micah in the fourth chapter, almost synonymous with Isaiah's second chapter. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be raised up above the hills people will stream to it all the nations of the earth will come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob that he may teach us his ways that's the entire earth for out of zion shall go forth instruction on the word of the lord from jerusalem He will judge between the people and will arbitrate between strong nations far away. And all of the nations of the earth will listen to him. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will never raise up sword against nation again. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But listen to this. Every person will sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord a host has spoken and all the peoples of the earth will walk each in the name of their God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Pluralism in the Old Testament. An inclusive projection of a gospel bigger than we have surmised. In that day, says the Lord, all of the people will walk in the name of their own God but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and every nation will do the word of the Lord. The earliest Christian writers, these Jewish people, believed there was a day coming and that a Messiah would come and he would bring that day to bear upon the earth. So you can imagine, you can imagine as Jesus began to teach and the crowds began to grow And as Jesus began to exert his power, he began to raise the dead, and he began to walk on water. As Jesus began to do these many miraculous things, these many miraculous signs, by the strength of his own power, his disciples became quite giddy, and they began to talk to him about the kingdom that was coming. Even the man who was crucified beside him on the cross, one of the two men, even said to Jesus, recognizing something special about him, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? His disciples believed this deeply, and as Jesus attracted crowds, the crowds fomented. Many scholars believe these crowds fomented into following as large as 100,000 people. Jesus was a megachurch pastor in those earliest days of his ministry. And as the crowds grew and grew and grew, his disciples understood it one way, to the point that even some of his disciples began to ask him, when you finally get this thing established, would you make us? Well, as a matter of fact, James and John's own mother came to Jesus and said, when you get this thing established, would you make one of our boys your vice president and the other your secretary of state? The disciples began to argue amongst themselves which of them would serve in high offices with Jesus. And just about the time Jesus had reached this zenith of his power and the crowds were burgeoning and growing, Jesus startled his disciples by beginning to explain to them how the Messiah must needs suffer many things and die. How he must needs go up to Jerusalem and die. The Bible said they were so stunned by this that on occasion they even rebuked him and told him that he was talking foolishly. One day, Simon Peter rebuked him, and Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, or rather, Satan, get thee behind me. And Simon was so rebuked, Jesus called him the devil. Anybody ever been called the devil by somebody who loved you? It's exactly what Simon received from Jesus that day, as Simon was trying to tell him, no, Lord, not so. These things can't happen to you. The Bible tells us that as Jesus was making His way to Jerusalem, the gospel writers make it very clear, especially the synoptics of Luke and Matthew and Mark, that as Jesus was going on His way to the cross, He stopped one day, just a few days out from His crucifixion, looked over the hillside there, and He's looked down at Jerusalem. He lamented and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stone those who are sent from Me, how oft would I have gathered you together. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Bible said, he wept and said, how oft would I have gathered you together, those of you who have killed the prophets that have been sent from me, those who have promised the kingdom of God, but Jesus said you would not. This is a hermeneutic key that the writers of what we call the New Testament used to illustrate what many theologians have especially been saying the last couple of hundred years and that is that Jesus did not immediately come to build a church or did not primarily come to build a Christian church Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah offering the kingdom to Israel Jesus was the fulfillment of what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah had prophesied and as he promised this kingdom to Israel Many scholars believe that the gospel writers were trying to explain that when Israel rejected that kingdom, Jesus put the kingdom of God on hold, projecting it out to what Christian people for the last few hundred years especially have called the millennial reign of Christ. And Jesus then, with the kingdom on hold, built a parenthetical statement, a parenthetical period of time called the era of the church. And this era of the church was a mitigated version of the kingdom. It was a smaller version of the kingdom. It was not a worldwide kingdom, a ubiquitous kingdom where all people were a part, but it was an exclusive kind of club, a group of people who would opt in and choose to be a part of this mirror, this vision of what one day would universally be, and that's the church. And, and to read the Gospels that way, I, I think makes the Gospels make a lot of sense, because Jesus, um, Jesus didn't sound like the church. Jesus did not sound in the beginning of his ministry, like he was offering this to everyone. He was starting with Israel. And when people from the Gentile nations would come to, you remember the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said, would you please heal my daughter? And Jesus said, I haven't come for people like you. I've not come to give the master's bread to dogs. And the Bible says that Jesus wasn't rebuked by her, but he was rebuffed when she said, I get that. I understand that. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Lee, you did a great sermon on that not long ago. Jesus did not come immediately to the Gentiles. He came to His people to establish their reign, and then their reign would fulfill the words of Abraham that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But first, He would get this group of people, this megaphone, this isolated, not exclusive, but this group that would include the entire world in their blessing. And there was rejection. And the rejection led to the death of Jesus. Ultimately, there was a resurrection The disciples were encouraged again because they thought if the miracle worker drew crowds, how much more would the resurrected one draw crowds? And yet Jesus, putting the kingdom on hold, disappeared from His disciples in the ascension and told them to go to Jerusalem. He told them to go to Jerusalem, and He told them to wait there until they were endued with power from on high, and that power would be the infusion of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives. When you read the Gospels, you actually read a, 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 a set of books that in no way show Jesus establishing a church. Uh, Jesus was not establishing a church in His earthly ministry. Everything about Jesus in the Gospels was pointing ahead to another day. Think about it. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the stuff that you do except God be with him. Jesus looked at him and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus fell back, punch drunk by these blows of truth, and Nicodemus said, Wait, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Verily, verily, Nicodemus, I say to you, except a man is born of water and spirit, he cannot see the kingdom. How are you a ruler of the Jews? How are you versed in the Scripture and not aware of what I'm trying to say here? Jesus said, For even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that story of the brazen serpent back in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, even as Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, and all the people were saved when their eyes fell upon it, even so, must the Son of Man first be lifted up. Jesus pointed ahead and said, there is a born again experience coming, but that born again experience can't happen until the Son of Man is lifted up. You move forward four chapters, John the seventh chapter, Jesus was standing on the top of Solomon's porch with the stairs beneath him. It was the last day of the great day of a Jewish feast. And the Bible says that as the priest took big pots of water and toppled them, and the water ran down the steps, and they began to quote Scripture about the coming kingdom and the equity and the justice that would come down from heaven upon the people, the Bible said Jesus stepped out, put his feet right in the middle of that flowing water and said with a loud voice, literally, said he cried out and said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has prophesied, out of his belly, out of her belly, will flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, but they had not received, for the Spirit had not yet been poured out, for Christ had not yet been glorified. So again, Jesus was not establishing the kingdom. Jesus was doing everything to point ahead to a day where people were going to be infused by the Spirit. But in John 3, he said first he had to be lifted up. That's the cross. In John 7, he said, then he's got to be glorified. That's the ascension into the heavens. And then in John 14, he looked at his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, and he said, I've got to go away. And the Bible said they were so sad. And they argued with Jesus. And they said, Lord, we don't want you to go away. What will we do without you? And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's plenty of room. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. This is not a scripture about heaven. This is not a scripture about streets of gold and big mansions that we're going to have one day. Literally, Jesus was talking about that move of the Spirit where He would go away in flesh, and then He would return in the power of the Spirit, infusing all people with the same Spirit that had raised Him singularly from the dead. Jesus said, I've told you that I'm going to go away, and it's made you sad. But if I go not away, the Holy Spirit cannot come. The people looked at him and said, Lord, we don't want the Holy Spirit. We want you. And Jesus smiled and said, fellows, you're missing the point. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. What is the ghost? The ghost is the spirit of a departed being. Who was the departed being? The departed being was Jesus so a little while later, a few days later, when they stood there watching Jesus ascend into the heavens, and the angel said, why are you standing here gazing? Go to Jerusalem. You'll be filled with the Spirit just as Jesus said, and this same Jesus that you've seen go away, He will come back in like manner. That's not talking about a rapture at the end of time. That's talking about the day of Pentecost when Jesus came back in the power of the Spirit and the body of Christ. This is the story of the church. Make of it what you want, but this is the story of the church. The church was not born in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament, though there is a little slip of paper between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew that says the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is not where the New Testament begins. The writer of Hebrews understood this and writing in a New Covenant context literally said where there is a testament there must of necessity be the death of the testator for a testament is not a force while the testator lives a last will and testament demands the death of the one that the testament's about and the writer of hebrews said nothing about the new testament happened until there was the death of the one that was attesting to that covenant and that death was jesus That's why Jesus said, you must be born again, but first I've got to be lifted up. That's why Jesus said, you will receive the Spirit, but first I've got to be glorified. That's why he said in John 14, I've got to go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. And that's why when they worshiped him there as he ascended, the angel said, he doesn't want you worshiping a floating Jesus. He wants you going to Jerusalem and becoming the body of Christ. That's the story of the church. The story of the church is not the story of a narcissistic God who wanted to be venerated by a group of people. The story of the church, Jeff, is the story of God incarnating God's self in the person of Jesus to show us not specifically and specially that this is the incarnational work of God singularly in this one bronze-skinned Galilean, but the picture of Jesus was the picture of all of us. Jennifer, the picture of Jesus. Perhaps the most beautiful thing Jesus said that has been most bothersome to us is in John 14 and 12, as he's telling them, I must go away. And they're saying, we don't want you to go away. And he's saying, but I'll come back. And I'll come back better than located in one person. I will come back in the power of the Spirit, and every one of you will become me. Jesus looked at them and said, greater works than I have done shall you do. Greater works works than I've done. You will do more. You will do better than I. So many of us recoil. We can't believe that we could ever be greater than Jesus, and yet that's exactly what Jesus said because the simple point of the church is that instead of the body of Christ being localized in one human being to be glorified and worshiped, the body of Christ actually now becomes every human being infused with the power of the Spirit. So wherever human beings infused with that Spirit are, there is Christ. That's why Paul, reflecting on that, the great theologian in Second Corinthians 5 said, To wit, God was in Christ. And he was reconciling the world unto himself. Christ was not the thing. Christ was the reconciling agent. God was not reconciling people to Christ. He was reconciling people to God's self through Christ. And then he said, and God has committed the ministry of reconciliation to you. So now we stand in Christ's stead, imploring the world to be reconciled to God. We literally have become the body of Christ. And so this is the message of the church. This is the story of the Christian church. And as the Apostle Paul was reflecting on who we were and what he would call us, he used a Greek word, a Greek word that perhaps many of you are familiar with, but the word is ecclesia. Transliterated in our English alphabet, it's E C C L E S I A. Ekklesia, it's a compound word that uses the prepositional form or or the prefix form E K, which means out of, and the last part of that word comes from the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. So, Ekklesia is a compound word that means to call out to call out from The apostle Paul looked at us as a Christian church and he said you are called out ones. And I think the question that the church is wrestling with especially now in the 21st century and this is the question of the progressive hermeneutics what are progressive hermeneutics what does it mean to be called out? what are we called out from? Who are we called out from? I grew up my entire life believing that God called us out from amongst the people to be a separate people, to be a different people, to be a better people than the rest. My understanding of the called outness of the Christian call was that somehow there would be an us and them mentality. We were called out and then we were to call to them to also be called out and we would be separated from the people of the earth. But I think, as I now reflect back on scriptures like Micah 4, for all the peoples will walk, each in the name of their own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever, and all of the people of the earth will do the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be called out. What does it mean to be a Christian church in this day and age? What is this salvation? What is this message of Jesus that we proclaim in all of the earth? I've been saying for the last couple of years, I really don't believe the message of salvation is that we need to reconcile people to God. You've heard me say it over and over. The good news that we never needed is that we can be reconciled to God. The great news we never heard was that we were never separated. If that is true, that human beings are less in need of salvation and more in need of finding out that they've always been safe. Think about that. Jennifer, you wrote about that so well on Facebook the other day. You gave me credit, but you said some things that I hadn't even thought of. What does it mean to be called out? What does it mean to be separate? Who are we separate from and why are we separate from them? What is our calling in this earth? These are the questions. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be a church? I could pause right here and I could open it to all of you and maybe without asking you to speak, I would just ask you to pause and think in your own heart. What does it mean to be a part of the Christian church? What is the point of a Christian church today? I had someone just this last week lament to me that if there is no eternal, burning, torturous hell then there is no need for a church, there is no need for Christianity. And I remember, Bob, when I I thought like that, that unless there was a torturous pit where people are eaten by worms and burned forever, in this person's mind, Kathy, they couldn't even frame that there was any reason to do church anymore. Why do we do church? What is this place that is a place of healing and learning and yearning and searching and serving and connecting and playing and praying within a community of love and support? What is this place that we come to that takes the glass of our individual life and makes it into a lake and divides the salt and the substance of life in such a way that it becomes palatable and more enjoyable? What is our calling in this earth? Is humanity here on this earth to create a church because there was a church that God wanted above all things, or is the church actually trying to create humanity? Are we here to serve the church, or is the church here to serve us? What is this church, this thing that for all of my life has been promising the best of the divine and so often delivering the worst of the human? I'll say that again. What is this thing that we've all been a part of that, that sets us up for such disappointment? I've never seen people experience more disappointment than they experience in the church. You know why? Because it promises more than any institution in the world. It is a place that promises the best of the divine, and yet so often in the midst of our human gathering. It, delivers the very worst of the human. It was Augustine that said, that said uh, very clearly and plainly, and I'll clean it up just a little bit, the church is a harlot, but she is my mother. And alas, he said, I have found myself to be a very real part of that harlotry. When faced with pain, There is this thing called the church where we have the ability to come together and right-size life. There is this place called the church where we have the ability to come together, called out, if not from people, called out from a system, called into a system that Jesus said often is so confusing because the way up actually ends up being down and those who want to be first find that actually within the church if they are last those who want to sit at the right hand actually find that the towel and gathering near the feet of the saints is actually the place of true power abased is exalted and exalted is abased and first is last and last is first and up is down and down is up I remember the first time I got my granddad's big 20-foot truck with a 25-foot trailer on the back of it. He was a sign man. He was kind of cruel to me that day. I had never backed up a trailer in my life. He put me in that truck, and he said, back this trailer up. Put it where it's supposed to be. And so I started backing it up, and you know exactly what happens when you start backing up a trailer, and you've never backed one up before. You start turning, and it goes the opposite direction of what you think, right? And I remember as I kept trying to back it up, and it kept doing the opposite My granddad put his hand over on my leg. He was sitting over in the side. He was a very godly man. And he said, I'll never forget these words, he said, this is kind of like the kingdom of God, Stan. Sometimes you've gotta close your eyes and do that which comes exactly unnaturally to you. And I remember that day, I closed my eyes I knew the trailer, I knew the direction I wanted the trailer to go, and at my first impulse of which way I thought I was supposed to turn the wheel, I turned it in the exact opposite. And did you know it turned out just right? It's like, anybody ever tried to cut your hair in the mirror? (laughs) I tried to clean up my hard part the other day with my razor in the mirror. It's very tricky because when you're looking in the mirror, the way you want to go is the opposite of the way you actually go, right? Right? And I gouged myself a couple of times, so I have kind of had to fluff it over with some hairspray to, to fix the gouge. But life in the mirror. And yet, the more I've thought about that, I actually think true spirituality and true Christianity is about remembering. And I actually think there is a memory underneath this theory of opposites that if we actually get all the way back and Jesus said, become a little child we actually will find that the way up, the way of exaltation, the way of glory and strength is actually very intuitive to us. And as the wise person said, everything we actually ever needed to know we did learn in kindergarten. And maybe we can get deep enough that we don't have to close our eyes and do the exact opposite, but maybe we can get deep enough and we can find that the Spirit of Jesus is resident under the layers of fallenness and culture and all of those things we have learned. Maybe actually we don't have to do the opposite. Maybe actually we have to actually remember the Spirit which has always been inside of us. And as I've said many times on the day of Pentecost when the church was born, the Bible said the Spirit fell from heaven. And yet the writer of Luke said the kingdom of heaven, per the words of Jesus, is inside of us. So when the Holy Spirit fell from heaven to understand the gospel, Luke and his theory, if heaven is inside of us and the Holy Spirit falls from heaven, then the Holy Spirit, this infusion of God into human lives that make us the church, that infusion is something that is not happening from the outside but it's happening from the inside and the birth of the spirit this recognition of that which is inside of us and always has been inside of us the Holy Spirit simply drops down into consciousness thus, as Frederick Beekner said in wendy 's writing earlier, there is a visible church of those who have their tickets punched and their pedigree signed and they have all the doctrine and they have the right words there is a visible church of those who have signs and buildings and call themselves such but there is an invisible church there is an invisible church of people just as full of the spirit Micah said their gods are named differently than ours but in that day as C.S. Lewis said they will stand before Jesus and they will say oh Jesus we didn't know it was you and Jesus will say oh but you knew me Today you learn my name. This is the invisible church. And this is why the same John who wrote in John 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, is the same John that wrote later in one of the latest books of the New Testament, 1 John, and said, I talked a lot about being born again in my earliest gospel or in my earliest writing the gospel of John, You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And then in 1 John 4, the latest writing, the old man says, Whoever loves is born of God. It's amazing to me how we've taken one Scripture and built Christianity around it. John 3.16 is an absolutely lovely verse, but the longer I live and the more I understand this idea of the visible church and the invisible church, the true work of God in the earth, the more I have concluded that if I'm going to take one verse out of the entire Bible and build a religion called Christianity around it, it probably would, Jeff, come from the writer John, but it wouldn't be, for God so love the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's a good text. I think I would go with 1 John 2, whoever loves is born of God. If you're going to take one verse, Will, why not take that one? Because I think the longer we live with this text and the longer we are the church, the longer we recognize the visible and invisible lines of the work of God's Spirit, the more we realize that the Christian church is not about a group of people who are excluding all others, the more we understand that it all comes down to love. As my friend Ryan Meek said, it's all Life, what does Ryan say? I forgot what he said. Something, something about life and love is the point. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And in that, you have the entire story. That is the Christian church. And that is the community that I want to be a part of. And we will keep promising the divine and we will keep delivering the human. And in the end, we may find out that the two are not different at all. Can you say amen? Amen. For in our humanity, incarnation says, this is the church, the visible image of God in the earth. Now, would somebody go get Jocelyn because I wanna close this service talking about, there she is, Jocelyn. And Elka, you're the head of our social action and love and action around here. Would you come, which microphone should she grab? Is that one working, Matt, is that turned on? Jocelyn, uh, Elka, would you introduce? We had an incredible fall, winter, and spring project with Room in the Inn, and we've really been needing something for our late spring and summer, and I think we found exactly that. This is something we've all been a part of. Um, bring your mom and dad up at some point and give a little interview here and tell the folk sure. what we've got.
1: So um, it goes right along with what just talked to us about, and that is being the idea being the church, and um, showing love, love and action, um, and sharing that love with others. And we have this amazing opportunity um, to really love on people this summer, love on these families and these wonderful children, um, with the uh, Stonebrook community and the refugees that live there. And so, um, Jocelyn's parents, they've been doing this for several years. We've had the opportunity to do the Christmas project with them, Mm -hmm. which is lovely and wonderful to see these families. Uh, but also to do a summer program, and that's what we're getting ready to do with them. So, um, Jocelyn,
2: go ahead, and if you would introduce yourself. So I'm Jocelyn Taylor, and these are my parents, Jeanette and Bob Veal. And um, my mom and I both have had the pleasure of being teachers to English learning students, so elementary-age kids who are learning the English language. And you can see a lot of their pictures Um, coming through up here Um, so there was one day that my mom was in a class um, as the teacher of a newcomer class these are students who had just arrived from overseas and pretty much all of them were refugees You may not know this, but Nashville is one of the um, biggest refugee populations in the United States. So when refugees are resettled, a lot of them end up in the Nashville area, and a lot of them end up at the school where my mom and I were teaching. So she had a little girl come into school one day, and she said, my mama is sad. And my mom said, why is your mom sad? And she said, because we don't have any food. And now in my house, my kids will tell you that we don't have any food. And what that means is that we're out of Pop-Tarts and Cheetos, right? <laughs> but we sent, um, we sent a school worker to the home and found out that they really didn't have any food. Um, Well, it was a Friday, and we didn't want this little girl to go home and be hungry all weekend, so the teachers took up money, and we bought food. We went to the store, and we got food and took it to the little girl for her weekend, but my mom said, wait a minute, that's great for this weekend, but what's going to happen over the summer? Um, because a lot of our kids rely on the free food that they get at school in order to provide their nutrition for the day. And a lot of them don't get food outside of what they're fed at school. And so um, she said, well, I guess we're just going to have to feed them. And we said, Mom, you're a little crazy, because there are hundreds of them and the teachers can't do this every day. We we can't give them food every day, and she said, "Well, we're gonna." She wouldn't take no for an answer. She's a little bit stubborn, and um, just calling that out right here. But um, it, long story short, she made it happen. And so for the last we've seven years, for the last seven years, we have run a. Refugee Summer Lunch Outreach. Um, We meet at the apartments where a lot of our refugee friends live, at Stonebrook Apartments in South Nashville. Um, It is largely populated by refugee and other immigrant families. Um, And we have families from all over the world, from Burma, Bhutan. This um, little girl right there is from Bhutan. Um, He's from Nepal. There's mom with Abram, one of our favorite little guys. This lady is from Africa. Um, she is in her 80s, which doesn't happen very often for people to live to be in their 80s at a refugee camp. Um, another grandma from Burma, and her, or from Nepal, and her grandchildren. Um, this is another family from Nepal. Oh, we know her and some little girls from Africa. Um, there's stan and some of our other volunteers serving another family from africa so over the last seven years we've gotten to go and really form relationships with a lot of these families Um, so what we do is every weekday in the summer um, we get deliveries from second harvest food bank they partner with us in the summer they deliver food once a week and we go over every day at about 10 o'clock and um Of course, we can't just give them food. We need to play with them and spend some time with them building those relationships. So we spend about an hour just playing with and loving on the kids. We have some toys that have been donated. We'll play soccer. We have a parachute that we'll get out. We play Play Play-Doh. We make crafts. Um, So we just play and love and build relationships. And then at 11 o'clock, we serve food. And so all of the kids will line up and we serve food. We have anywhere from 80 to 150 kids who show up daily in the summer to get food. But we know realistically that that one meal isn't going to be enough. And so we take food donations that we give out to the kids to take home. So after they've all eaten lunch, they all line up again. And they get a bag of food that they're able to take home to their families. And so we have a lot of things like um, rice and fresh fruits and vegetables and whatever we can get donations of, we give out. Um, And what has been really amazing to me over the last seven years doing this, there have been several things, but um, the relationships that we've made with these families and to see um, that just because we happen to be born in different parts of the world doesn't mean that we're different on the inside, that God has made all of us unique and lovely, and um, with worth, just as we are. The other thing that's been really neat to see is, you know, we've watched a lot of these kids grow up, and of course, they've wa- they've grown up with my kids, because they get drugged there every day, um, and we see families who are able to get themselves to a financial place where they can move out, and they can um, move on to Um, a better place for themselves, and then turn around and start pouring back into the communities. So, you know, a lot of times people are nervous about giving a handout or, you know, whatever, and what I've seen with our friends here is that they are so grateful, and it really is a step up for these families, So Jocelyn, uh,
1: how -hmm. can we help? What are we going to be doing here with Grace Point in helping
2: these families and these children? So two things that you can do to help. The first thing is come. Come, come, come. Um, What we're hoping to do is to be able to staff one day a week with Grace Point people and have Grace Point be in charge of that. If you come you could be playing with kids, blowing bubbles, getting your hair braided, um, whatever it is that um, is your gift with the kids. We also need folks to carry boxes and put them away to help organize the food that we have, um, things like that to help hand out food. And then crowd control. A lot of our kids come with trauma backgrounds because they've come from refugee camps. In a refugee camp it's the child's job to stand in line all day to get food for the family, and only the people in the front of the line get food. So imagine what happens when you try to put kids in a line. Our newly arrived friends tend to be very aggressive, and that's because that was survival for them. And so what we have found is if we can have volunteers come and stand in line with kids and remind them, there's going to be food for you, it's going to be okay, that that not only makes it go easier for us, but it helps change the heart of a child because they see there are people who care and there's going to be enough for me. So coming to volunteer is the number one thing that we need. Um, We need anywhere between 15 and 20 people minimum each day to make this work. And the three of us can only do so much. Um, We don't like to let dad carry stuff (laughs) anymore.
1: So we're doing a sign up genius correct
2: we are going to do a sign up genius look at, look for the facebook page and we'll do that you can take a day off work it is kid friendly so if you have kids please bring your kids and let them just form relationships here um you'll see that stan brought nina several times last summer and she seemed to really enjoy it
0: not only did she enjoy it she asked to go back hmm. and so did michael cofall and others it really is profound um before we end, I, I really want to emphasize we are going to sign up tonight. Elka said that, so please sign up. Uh, there's a place for everybody. You, your mom and dad don't like to be bragged on too much, but I really think it is a phenomenal story. She was retiring. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, tell a little bit of that. Let the, let the folks know. I mean, this is somebody who didn't know what to do but had to do something. And look at this program that started.
2: Right. Yeah, she had act, she had technically retired and was teaching part time when she met that little girl, and um, she, yeah, she's not good at being retired, um, and so in the summer this is their full time job. They actually we actually work with these families year round um, and do lots of different things. She's taught English classes. She's taught um, you know and things. Emer- what is 911 and what is a time change, and how do you so that they know when to go pick their kids up from school? Things that are survival skills here in the United States, but that nobody might think to tell them so she does a lot of that we've done clothing giveaways we do a santa party because you know we have santa here (laughs) um so um and in the summer um one of our kids went to school and said something really strange and his teachers were confused he said that santa comes twice a year he comes at christmas to bring presents and he comes on the fourth of july to bring watermelon which is true. He, he does. He brings watermelon on the 4th of July. Um, so, anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a fun thing. But, yeah, let me just say that these two folks have been inspirational. Um, we now have to force them not to be out carrying boxes and children. Um, but they're still there pretty much every day and um, are just amazing Um, Besides coming to volunteer, the other thing that you can do, I know a lot of people work and might not be able to get off, um, we can always use donations of rice. That's the one thing. We have kids from lots of different cultures, and the one thing that they all have in common is they all like rice. Um, And so what a lot of folks will do is go to Costco or Sam's and get the big 50-pound bags of rice, um, and then subdivided into gallon-sized baggies. And again, I'll put, I'll put directions for this on the website. Um, and that's, that is an amount that a kid can carry home for mama to make food that night. Um, the other thing that's really popular is dried beans. Um, so we can um, collect rice and dried beans. If you ever have any, just bring them to me, and, um, and I'll make sure that it gets where it needs to go. But um, So if you want to be a part and you can't come during the day, that's another way that you can be involved. And then 4th of July, I know everybody's off on the 4th of July. We have a big party on the 4th of July. And so go on and plan now. Our party's at lunchtime, um, and we grill out turkey hot dogs because our Muslim friends can't eat pork and our Nepali friends can't eat beef. So um, we'll have turkey hot dogs and, um, and watermelon with Santa. Um, so make plans now to be there that day and come and play. And
1: Wonderful. again, let me emphasize, this is a family-friendly thing. So bring your children. Tara brought the kids um, last summer, and they had a blast. And they remembered the kids that they played with come to the Santa party. And we went to that, and they sat and played with them because they're like, I remember you from last summer. So bring the children. It's a great way for the children to learn how to love other people outside of our wonderful. Wonderful. So.
2: One other quick thing. This year, you know, I've moved schools, and I teach at a school in a more affluent area now than where I was. And this year, I have a little girl in my class who's Nepali. And she, when she was little, she lived at the apartment. And would come every day and eat food with us. And when she came in and saw that I was her teacher, she came in and gave me a big hug and said, "Miss Taylor, we don't have to come get food anymore because now we can afford to buy food. But she's told me several times and her mother has told me just how much it meant for them in their time that they couldn't provide for their kids to have somebody help.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Let's okay, so sign up sign up, sign up, look for that sign up genius and let's do this.
0: Matt, you guys come and let's receive our offering before we go home. And one more time for these two angels walking down the middle aisle right now.